Good to see you. Uh, last weekend, did, did Sam not do a great, great job? I really, really blessed that hocus focus thing. Uh, I don't know about if you've noticed or not, but uh, this whole preaching team is doing awesome. And we're going into some deep subjects in the book of Acts. And uh, today, it's my uh, great privilege to be able to share with you chapter 19 and 20. And being that we're dealing with two chapters, I won't read every verse of it. Last weekend, um, you know, we'd been praying for my wife's mom. She'd been sick for a long time. And we'd went down uh, about uh, six or seven weeks ago and she was there. Uh, I got a hotel and she was there in the room with her day and night. And I never even come to the to the room and uh, taking care of her mom. And her mom, that we thought she's going to be gone, then she came out of that and went home. And she seemed to just have this amazing uh, turnaround. And she got where she called us. And she would call us. And uh, she would call and talk to Sharon. Always wanted to know how you know, she was doing, how I was doing, how my mom and dad was doing, and the kids and all that. And she, would, she was like getting her memory back, too. And she was saying, uh, now, didn't we live... Uh, in the, you know, talking about, didn't we live in the Panama Canal? And Sharon goes, yeah, Mom, we lived in Panama Canal. And my wife was here in first service, and she actually, my wife kindly preached her own mom's funeral. I mean, she done the obituary, and then she shared a lengthy portion of her mom's funeral. Told about her mom getting married at 14. Now, I don't understand why we... Uh, me and Sharon, we waited till we were 17. I mean, like, that's a long time, ain't it? 17, can you believe that? People back then got married at 14, we got married at 17, that's a long time. But anyway, she got married at 14, and by the time she was 18, Sharon's mom, she had three kids. And so, you know, and you, you're dealing with, then uh, she uh, was in the military, her, her husband was in the military, or Sharon's first dad, and uh, he had to go uh, be gone for a period of time. And so here she is with three kids, and she don't have a driver's license. And she, uh, her husband's gone to, uh, to war. And, uh, and so then they're in the Panama Canal. She can't speak the language. And you start thinking about that, and you start thinking of history a little different. And I told her, ever since I knew my wife's mom, she had been sick. Uh, she didn't come to our wedding. She didn't come to our first child's birth. She did come to the second child's birth. Never come to any birthday parties or anything throughout the life that we've been married. Visited our house, I think, twice. And, you know, you could take that and you go, well, you know what, man? I mean, she wasn't there, but yet... You didn't walk in her shoes. You didn't get married at 14. You didn't have three kids. You didn't. And so you have to look back at life and look at it in their perspective. And so last Saturday, we were sitting at a, a funeral home. And here my wife was sharing a big portion about her mom's life. And I think people in the room were somewhat surprised because some of her own siblings didn't know some of this. And then I finished up the uh, funeral. I, 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 just, I was going, dealing with this message, and I was also 
getting ready to do my mother-in-law's funeral. And I was thinking about Ecclesiastes. You know, Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. And Solomon is noted to be the smartest man that ever lived under the sun. That's a big key word there, under the sun. Not meaning he had heavenly knowledge. He had under the sun knowledge. And he was given that you, you want, what do you want? You want wealth or you want wisdom? And he said, I'll take wisdom. I'll take wisdom. And so, you know, you think about that. How do you get wisdom? I got to think about that. Wisdom, wisdom, wisdom. How do, you, how do you get wisdom? Do you just click? You got wisdom? I don't think that's how it works. So I was looking up. For some reason, I got to looking at the word human. That we're just all humans. We fail each other. You've failed some people in your lifetime, and some people has failed you in their lifetime. You've been hurt by some people in your lifetime. They've hurt you in your lifetime. We're human. So I was looking at that word human, and we, what we are, we're, we are uh, uh, homo sapiens. Homo sapiens is what we are. And I looked up the word there, and homo sapien is saying that we are... Sapien means we are the wise ones. I'm going, man, whoever wrote this in Latin was wrong. We're the wise ones. And then I was reading, well, how did they get homo sapiens that we're the wise ones? And I looked into that further and I began to see what it meant is we are the ones that we learn by our failures and our successes and by our experiences and a life of experiences. The more experiences you have, probably the more wisdom you'll have. How many's had a whole load of stuff to be, have wisdom over? Did you get wisdom or did you get hurt? Did you get pain? Did you get bitterness? I, I, I took issue even at the funeral with uh, the fact that Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived because I think if you would have interviewed at least 200 of his wives, they'd have said, that's a lie. Because <laughs> he had 300 wives. You know, at least 250 of them probably said, that's stupid. I don't know who, where he got that. He must have said that. But I got to thinking about that. If he was going to have wisdom, some of you go, well, I've got the wisdom of one wife. Some of you got the wisdom of two or three. And some of you have had one job your whole life. Some of you have had, you know, bunches of jobs. Some of you have had, you've lived in one place your entire life. And some of you have been all over the country. And all those things together brings wisdom. And, and so Solomon wanted wisdom. So God said, you want wisdom? I'm going to give it to you. Here's just a whole boatload of stuff you're going to experience in life. And he had wealth and he had vineyards and he had wine and he had servants and he had 300 wives and he had concubines. And oh my God, he just, if you start going through all the stuff that Solomon had that he experienced. He was like the homo sapien of the homo sapien. He had a whole truckload of things to have wisdom over. And he gets to toward the end of his life and Solomon goes, it's vanity. It's all vanity. It don't mean nothing. There's very few things under the sun that ever really means anything. And what brings that up? I, I think about Paul and we're going we're almost to get through in the book of Acts and 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 Paul he went on his first missionary journey kind of reminds me of the campaigns you know you go go around and try to 
get out the vote and then you go around again and you go around again and you go around again. How many will be glad after Tuesday that these crazy ads will be off TV? I want to know, has anybody been convinced at all by one of those ads? I don't know what kind of idiots are producing them, but who, what do they take us for, idiots? But I, I see that we're in this world that they tell you, you're supposed to be politically correct. I looked in this in Acts 19 and verse 8, and I, I saw this this morning, and I was thinking, boy, have I been wrong. Paul entered the synagogue, and you got to remember that Paul entered the synagogue in Ephesus there, and he went in there, and he was trying to get through to religious people. The hardest people to get through to is religious people. Do you know that? He's trying to get through to religious people, but they thought they were right, and they had the biggest temple in town. So if you got the biggest temple in town and you think you're right, you must be right. But they wasn't. They wasn't right. You know, and that's the way it was in Jerusalem, you know, and now they're in Ephesus, and now the God... Diana is the big thing. And, but Paul entered the synagogues and he spoke boldly there for three months. Three months he went there every day and he spoke in the synagogues and he told them and he told them and he told them and he told them. Sound like a campaign ad, right? And for three months, and here's something else that Paul did. I, I didn't know whether you were supposed to do this as a Christian, but he argued. I guess it's all right for people to argue sometimes. And he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Now, what is the way? The way is the name given to the Christian people. They didn't have an official name yet. They didn't have a church name. They didn't have a brand. So they just called him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they said, yeah, them people of the way, they're crazy. And the religious people weren't going to listen to anything the people of the way said. And Paul, he argued the fact that the way was right and even the religious people were wrong. He argued persuasively for three months, being ridiculed. And finally God releases him from going to the synagogues. You know, if you read the Word of God, you'll find out that the Bible says God's Spirit will not always strive with man. God will try to get through to you. He'll get through to you with highs and lows and hurts and things and try to get through to you, teach you lessons to curve and change and help you. I was reading thing on Facebook this morning, a preacher friend of mine, he puts up on Facebook and I said, oh my God, you're going to be in trouble for that. He said, have you noticed the people, all the people that are against abortion are alive or that are for abortion is alive? They're alive? I'm thinking, oh, you shouldn't have said that. Now I get to a church and I'm reading this and Paul argued persuasively for three months and they would not hear. They would not listen. They would not turn. They would not reason. Our nation is getting very close to the point that no matter how many millions and billions of dollars are spent on ads, people have made up 
minds. They're, they're, just, uh, they're just refused to see any different than they have seen. They refuse anything to do with the way. It, they don't care what statistics say. They don't care what the truth is. They're just going against the way. I'm going to tell you. And so what God did, finally Paul moved from the synagogue and he went and found a lecture hall. Tyrannius offered this facility and for two years Paul taught in that lecture hall. And while he was teaching in that uh, that lecture hall, he was not even worthy to be in the synagogues anymore. They had turned their back on him. But God did not turn his back on him. In verse 11 of chapter 19, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. Can you imagine having such an anointing and a power that people wanted your garments, your clothes, they wanted to take them off of you and take them and, 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 keep, and put them somewhere. They wanted to hold them against their sicknesses and they wanted to take them home to someone that was demon-possessed and they wanted that because just the garments that Paul wore had still that much power in them. Just because the entire world turns their back on you don't mean God turns your back on you. And so these Jews that no longer had Paul in their center gods, they went around town and they thought they would do like Paul and they would drive out the evil spirits. And it said they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, even though they didn't really believe in the Lord Jesus. You ever seen any people invoking stuff they don't even believe in to get elected, to get placed, to get favor? So the Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches... Yeah, the Paul that drove out of the synagogue. The, the, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. The seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day an evil spirit answered them and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? I don't know about you, whether this world finds any favor in me, whether this world give me any accolades or any glory, I want Jesus to know my name and I want the devil to know my name. The devil knew Jesus and the devil knew Paul. When Jesus would just walk around, demons would begin to run and say, have you come to send us to that place of torment now? They knew the authority and the power of Jesus. Like the songs they were singing, his name still steals the storms. Amen. And so they were playing this game of being spiritual when they really wasn't spiritual. And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. And he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. It's no time for the church that's playing church 
to attempt to deal with the demons of this world. We're in a struggle against good and evil. We're in a struggle between the way and the lie. We're in a, a struggle in this, in this world between the truth and the lie, between God and Satan. In this city of Ephesus, they, was this, they said this, this, uh, this, this God had fell out of the heavens and her name was Diana and she had come and they had these temples to Diana. There's somebody else I heard that fell out of heaven. He actually didn't fall out of heaven. He got cast out of heaven and it was Satan. He fell to this ground. Folks, the battle that the world is in, the battle for your marriage, the battle for your home, the battles you face, you need to realize these are not flesh and blood battles. This is spiritual warfare. Paul would later give us that last part of the book of Ephesus telling us about the spiritual warfare that we're in. There was a, a, a great number of people that practiced sorcery, if you find in verse 19. And they were so into de demonic stuff and, and sorcery that Paul's daily preaching, he kept telling the truth. He kept arguing persuasively. And he would tell them, you're wrong. You're going against the way. This is the right way. I'm going to tell you, it doesn't matter what, which way your political party goes. Don't let your political party go against this word or the power of God. Amen. Don't let it go against the power of God, the word of God. Because God will favor this word and he'll favor his children's word and their prayers and he'll honor it. Amen. But you've got to be in the way. And sometimes to be in the way, people hate your guts. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Paul argued persuasively. I think it's time again for the church to be nice, to be civil. But I think sometimes we need to argue persuasively about the way. Because this world is not going the way that God wants it to go. And sometimes we need to stand up. But somebody may say something bad about me on Facebook. Oh, tell Paul about it with his 40 stripes five times. Save one out of mercy, 39 stripes. Tell it to him he'd been stoned and let out of cities by baskets because they wanted to kill him. Tell it to Paul who was, he was told not to come back to the synagogues and now he's meeting. But the thing is, no matter where Paul met, God met him there. Because God was on his side and God favored him. What we need as a church, as a people, as a family, we need the favor of God. Amen. The favor of God sometimes don't come in numbers. They, were, they went, and this is so prevalent to today. You know what they did? It was all about money. When Paul began to preach this, it stirred the town upside down and they began to give up their false gods. They went and gathered up the books or the scrolls on sorcery and they brought it to the center of the town and they began to burn these scrolls. And these scrolls, if you know anything about scrolls in biblical time, it cost a lot of money to have anything in print. 
They said that these strolls that was brought to the center of the town and burnt would have been the salary of 150 men. They said in today's, uh, today's time and the time we live in, it been in the millions of dollars. Some have estimated several million dollars. And they brought them and they burned them because they were sick and tired of sorcery. They were sick and tired of witchcraft. They were sick and tired of the devil. They were sick and tired of being in slavery to that. And they were turning to the way in groves in great numbers. And because Ephesus needed to do something because they had a little tink that's made out of silver and the silversmiths were saying, if we don't do something about this religion, they're gonna wipe us out. They've already, people are already burning their, their, their books, their strolls about witchcraft and they're not gonna buy any more tinklets, our little gods of Diana anymore. And so they were more concerned about their money than there was their God the true and living God. It was all about money. The, the synagogue, it was all about money. This, the temple of Diana was all about money. And today, most of what's being done in the name of politics is all about money. And I think we're all aware of that. And we see here that, that because of this, they, they, were, they got a group of people and this stadium that uh, Paul was in, they rushed in there and 25 thousand people came against Paul and they stirred up a false riot. Boy, that sounds familiar for some reason. I think I've read that or heard that on the news lately or something. Just because you've got numbers don't mean you've got God. It don't mean you've got favor. It don't mean you've got power. It don't mean you can cast out devils. It don't mean you can heal the sick. They were angry because their ability to make money was being turned upside down because a guy that wasn't even allowed in the temple was preaching in a little room. Mainly what I want to talk about today is this Paul. The 20th chapter of Acts is his farewell speech. He was trying to tell them, this is the last time I'm going to get to speak to you. How I many knows when somebody's telling you their failure speech, they'll tell you the truth. And Paul, he goes through it, he starts telling them, and he, he's telling them about what's going to happen. He's filling in his spirit. He's near the end. It's almost to the end. It's almost to the time. Now they're staging, they're staging protest against him. And Luke says none of the protest was even true, that Paul had not done anything to them. He had brought no non-truth. It was just pure out the enemy was coming against them. It was satanic attack that was on Paul. Paul stood and he told, he was giving them his last message. He preached such a long message that a guy fell out of the third story window and fell to the ground and died. Paul said, hold your finger on that passage. I'll be right back. He goes down and raises the guy that fell out of the window that died back to life. If you go to sleep in my service, you're on your own. <laughs> it's like this one pastor, he said, hey, wake your husband up. He's snoring in the service. And the wife said, you put him to sleep, you wake him up. <laughs> I think about how relevant this is. 
Paul, I say, what did Paul learn in his lifetime? Uh, Chapter 26 through 12 starts his farewell speech, his service. And you'll find that Luke is with him and Titus is with him and Timothy is with him. And here's some of the highlights of his speech. He says, Paul says, this is the Lord's day. I wonder if we think of this as the Lord's day. This, This day. It belongs to the Lord. Not only this day, this day is to remind us that every day belongs to the Lord. But not only do people don't really think that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday belong to the Lord, but they kind of don't even care if this day belongs to the Lord. I shared something this week, said, the more you miss church, the less you miss it. Take you a minute to let that one hit the more you miss church the least you miss it but Paul said I want you to know it's the Lord's day it's the Lord's day he said it's the Lord's supper when you're taking that it's his body and it's his blood that was shivered it's the Lord's supper he said it's the Lord's people it's the Lord's people he said it's the Lord's message not my message, it's the Lord's message. He said it's the Lord's power. God decided to confirm his power through Paul. It's the Lord's power. He never forgot that. Even when a guy fell asleep and fell out the window, Paul went down and resurrected him. Paul gets in chapter 20, 13 through 38, Paul is giving, getting now into his farewell message part. And he, he tells them, he said, a lot of things are coming. He said, the Jewish mob, they've stirred up a mob against me. These were religious people that had went wrong. He, he said, I want to review my past from the first day that God had called me, he said, I've been serving the Lord. In other words, I've been bought with a price. I belong to the Lord. Everything I do belongs to the Lord. He called me to suffer many things for his name's sake. I'm trying to be faithful to that, he said. My primary motive, Paul said, is serving the Lord. Nothing more important. The manner of my ministry, I've never wanted the ministry to be about money, he said, so many times rather than ask people that might think that we're all out for money. I just, we started preparing tents and making tents and we would sell the tents. Long time ago when we started this church, I said, we're not going to pass a plate because the world that we live in thinks all the church is out for is money. And we know that when your heart gets captured by the Lord, you'll realize that everything you own belongs to him. And you will be very thankful to give 10% to him. And that's the way Paul felt. He said, I didn't, I didn't ever want my motives to be questioned. So I actually went and I collected money to give to the Jews and to the ministry. And he said, one thing you'll find that uh, Paul does and, and, and get to in this message 
is, I call this message day one day, and you'll understand in a minute. One day, things are going to change. One, right now, we're under the sun. A lot of things don't make sense. A lot of things don't make sense. A lot of things don't add up. There's a lot of injustice. There's a lot of hatred. I was sharing in my wife's mom's funeral. I said, Solomon, he was wise. He said, you know, there's a day to be born and there's a day to die. There's days you're going to laugh and there's days you're going to cry. There's days to plant and there's days to reap. If you take that list, you'll see that about 50% of your life is going to suck. I don't think anybody's ever told you that from the pulpit. <laughs> but I mean, is that not what Solomon's saying? He's pretty much saying that. I'm going to show you, though, how he can still be the Lord. Even when life sucks for you. When things are not going well. He said, my message has always tried to be the message that Jesus wanted me to preach. He said, I've told sinners to repent. And, and I, I've preached even when I was being, I would, I would be stoned. And I've received almost 200 stripes. And I've been shipwrecked. And I've been through a lot. But I've always kept telling the message. I told it, most of what I've shared, people didn't like to hear. But I shared it anyway. And we find that this Paul, he has this feeling that he's getting to the end. He said, I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ. As I have been in the past, he, he was bold. He would argue for the way. And I, I've been, I, that I have been I, bold as I have been in the past. I have trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. And he says here, he said, for me, for me, living means living for Christ. That's the only thing, the only reason to live is to live for Christ. There's no other reason to exist on earth but to live for Christ. And dying is even better than that. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go be with Christ, which would be far better for me. Paul was going through daily rejection, daily beatings, daily stonings, daily stuff. And then if that was not enough, over in chapter 21 of Acts, which somebody will get into as we go on, we'll get to that passage. But this prophet, Agabus, Paul is sensing the end is near. And Agabus comes and takes this belt and puts it around. And he takes Paul's belt and said, give me your belt. And he wraps it around his hands and his feet. And he said, the person who owns this belt, when they get to Jerusalem, will be captured and handed over. That was going to begin the, many, the, the jailing of the Apostle Paul. This is him spending time in jail. The, 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 the soldier, the man of God, he's fixing to go to jail for his belief. He said, it's fixing to happen. So Paul was gathered around and, 
And he, he, they were going to go by ship. He had heard that they were going to attack the ship that he was on. So he went another way. He walked. And probably on that last journey, he was walking and thinking about the days he lived and how much he tried to do for God and how much was rejected. And, but he said, I've always tried to be true to the message. And he, he used pictures in this. He said, I consider my life, and he gave graphic pictures of the accountant. I have to give an account for my life. Or the runner, I, I'm running a race, and I've got to throw off everything, and I want to run the race. And uh, I, as a steward, I've got to be a good steward of what God has given me. And, and he said, I've got to be a true witness, and I've got to be a herald. I've got to tell people. I've got to be a watchman. And he said, all those things I've tried to be. And then he changes in his message. And I told you it was a long message. And he says, I, I, I want to give you a warning about the future. And this is in verses 28 through 38. Paul says, I want you to know that this, the, the way is the church. It's the called out ones belonging to God. We're the church of God. And the church of God is important. It's important to God and it's important to the son. It's important to his son because his son shed his very blood for it. It's important to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit filled it. I think Paul was like, your low regard to the church is sickening. Paul said, to begin with, I want to tell you that there's dangers all around us. There's wolves coming and they're, they're just taking hold of the flock. They're, they're wolves in sheep clothing. Be careful, they're out there. And he says, and he says, also there's dangers around us. There's dangers all around us. They're, they're wolves. He said, there's dangers among us. In, in Acts 20 and 30, there's dangers among us. Ambition, uh, ambitious people, position-minded. All they want is power. Church history uh, tells about that. There was one brother that went completely went against Paul, Demetrius. And uh, he tells about how he wanted the preeminence. He said, there's dangers within us. Often he found like Judas was, there's someone that's given themselves over to a demonic spirit. There's, there's dangers within us. That's Acts 20, 31 through 35. And he said, there's dangers because of carelessness. Acts 20 and 31, people are becoming careless. They're forgetting the price others have paid for so great a gospel. He says there's another great sin that's among us and that's in Acts 20 and 32 is shallowness. Paul said it's getting where people won't endure sound doctrine. You go, well, why have y'all went back to the word of God preaching such long biblical passages? Because that's the time we live in. If we've ever needed to re-indoctrinate a generation, it's now. Because there's scary things going on all around us. There's shallowness. And he says there's covetousness. People are grabbing to themselves, forgetting God. He says in Acts 20 and 34, there's a laziness. There's laziness among us, he said. And Paul kind of finishes up. In Acts 20 and 35, he says, there's a lot of selfishness among us. People only care what they care about. And Paul said, it's not good. 
You know, it's during these times, and I guess as a minister, I end up finding myself in these times more where I'm, I do funerals, and sometimes I do funerals very close to me. And like my, my mother-in-law, Sharon's mom, it's time like these that make one take inventory of one's life. How have I lived my life? What have I to show for my life? What have I accomplished in my time here on earth? Have I fulfilled the purpose God has for me? Have I treated others right? A number of years ago, there was this psychologist. Uh, he worked for the sociology department at a college, and he studied 50 people who were over 95 years of age. And he asked them one question. If you could live your life over again, what would you do differently? Since it was not a multiple choice question, but rather an open-ended one, the respondents shared a wide variety of answers. There were three answers, however, that reoccurred very often. Number one, if I had it to do over again, I would reflect more. See, us homo sapiens, us supposedly wise ones by repetition and experiences, we need to reflect, I did that wrong. Some of you go, you know, I did my first marriage wrong. That last job I did wrong. I shouldn't have done that. That last person I offended, I shouldn't have done that. We reflect, I would have done some things different. I think it's foolish for somebody to get to the end or even the middle of their life and say, I would never do anything different. There's a whole lot of stuff I'd do different. If I had to do again, I would risk more. That's another thing. These people over 95, they said if they had their life to do it, they'd risk more. If I had it to do over again, I would do more things that would live on after I'm dead. The sociologist was Tony Campolo, and he wrote a book about this interview process called Who Switched the Price Tag? Way back in 1986. This morning, I want us to consider what we can do that will live on after we are gone, doing things that really last. What is the meaning of life? When faced with the reality of death, we often become more aware of the need to do something of a lasting value for others. Tony Campello tells of a story because in that city he lived in, he went to a black Baptist church. Each year they would have this worship service and the college students would each share about their campus experience he tells how after the students all shared, the pastor addressed the students. See, this was uh, right during Christmas break and they were fixing to go back to school in January and so the students would get up and tell about going to college and it made the parents and the grandparents so happy because they never got the privilege, many of them, to be able to afford college and so it was a great time to listen to their kids or their grandkids tell about their college experiences. And But when they got through this Baptist pastor got up and he had a little something to tell the college students. He said, children, he said, you're going to die. You may not think you're going to die, but you are going to die. One of these days, they're going to take you out to the cemetery and drop you in a hole and throw some dirt on your face and go back to the church and eat some potato salad. He said, when you were born, you alone were crying and everybody else was happy. The important question I want to ask is this. When you die, are you alone going to be happy? 
and leaving everybody else crying. The reason I bring this up is Paul has Agabus comes up and says he's fixing to go to Jerusalem, he's fixing to be arrested, and he's fixing to come to the end of his life. And all of them fell on him and started crying. And they, they begin to cry and cry and cry. And we find this here. And while they were staying on for a few more days, Paul was trying to give them all the time he could with them. And it said this prophet of Judah, Agabus by the name, came down. And here's, here's this story here. And he says, as he come, having come to us and having taken Paul's belt, having bound to his own feet and hands, he said these things. He says, the Holy Spirit has spoken to me. In this manner, the Jews in Jerusalem will bind the man whose belt this is and hand him over into the hands of the Gentiles. And when we heard these things, both we and the local residents were begging that he not be going up to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go, Paul, don't go. Then Paul responded, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. Paul said, you're breaking my heart. For I am ready not only to be bound, but even die in Jerusalem. For the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul, the once murderer of Christians, now had so been changed by the power, miracle working power of God that now people were falling on him, hugging him, crying and saying, Paul, don't go. We need you, Paul. Don't go. We love you, Paul. And Paul said, don't, don't, don't make me go through this. And the answer to whether when you die, whether you're alone going to be happy and everybody else in the room is crying the answer depends on whether you live to get titles or you live to get testimonies. When they lay you in the grave, this, this Baptist preacher said, are people going to stand around reciting fancy titles you earned? Are they going to stand around giving testimonies of the good things you did for them? Will they list your degrees and awards or will they tell about what a blessing you were to them? Will you leave behind just a newspaper column telling people how important you were? Or will you leave crying people who gives testimonies of how they lost the best friend they ever had? There's nothing wrong with titles, the preacher said. Titles are good things to have, but if you ever come down to a choice between a title and a testimony, go for the testimony, kids. Campolo say, said at that point, the preacher went into this poetic rip like they do in black churches that make that black preaching so extra special. And he went through the Bible talking about those people who had titles and the ones who had testimonies. He shouted in this rhythm and each line got stronger than the one before. He said, Pharaoh may have had a title, but Moses had a testimony. Nebuchadnezzar may have had a title, but Daniel had a testimony. Queen Jezebel may have had a title, but Elijah had a testimony. On and on, he continued listing different Bible characters with power and prestige and then naming the people of God whose lives were testimonies. With each set of the Bible characters, his voice grew in intensity as the sweat poured down his face. The congregation were participating and they were shouting, amen, glory, preach it, brother, tell the story. And finally, he came to the climax of the message. 
He said, Pilate may have had a title, but my Jesus had a testimony. What is the meaning of life? What is most important to us? Campbell said, along with the seniors in this study, testimonies are more important than titles. It's easy to get our values mixed up in life. It seems natural to focus on our achievements, our accomplishments, our awards, but it's the loving things we do for others that live long after we're gone. The Apostle Paul would agree with this. He knew the secret of life. It's simple this, simply this, living for Christ and dying is even better. Philippians 1.21, at the end of his life when others saw him as a failure, as others saw Paul as a failure, Paul knew that his life was more than a list of accomplishments and accolades. Paul, there's only eight recorded messages of Paul in the that Luke recorded eight sermons. You could go read all Paul's sermons in a, in a few hours. But he literally shook cities for God. It was only in living for Jesus Christ that anything mattered. But he also knew that dying for the sake of Christ meant an eternal eternity of joy and peace. As he contemplated the purpose and the meaning of life, one can almost see him struggling internally as he penned these words. I want to go be with Christ. He says, that would be joy for me. I want to go. All of them were hugging on him and crying on him. I want to go. I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to be bound. I want to go to jail. I want to give everything, every breath, every drop of blood. I want to give it all. That would be joy for me. Yet what about the fruit of my labor? I'm hard pressed to decide whether I want to go be with Christ or stay with you. I think so many times as the warnings Paul gave him about covetousness and selfishness. And I want to end with this story today. A story about a young man that's more relevant today for some of you in the building, Joel and Bart. Bart had worked hard to be a great player on a soccer team. Since his freshman year, he had played soccer and he was finally made it to be the goldie. But now he was in his senior year. It should be his veteran season. It should be his heyday. It should be he made it. He's finally a senior. He's playing Goldie. Everything should be going perfect for him, for Bart, or, or his, for Joel. But this boy named Bart came in in his freshman year, and he was so good, he took Joel's place. He became the Goldie in his freshman year and knocked Bart out of his senior year. Or not Joel. And it was highly unusual and somewhat awkward for Bart as well as for the former starting Goldie. This came to a point in Joel's life he had to make a decision. Am I going to be mad? Am I going to be angry? And I'm going to be then vindictive? And Joel decided to do the other. Joel didn't let this disappointment cause him bitterness or a grudge. Instead, he showed support and encouragement for the freshman Goldie. 
One thing that made Joel different was his faith in Christ. He didn't just talk about it, he lived it. He invited Bart to social gatherings and as well as church youth gatherings. One day Bart told his family that he was going with Joel for the day. Joel kept inviting him to stuff, even though he had been replaced by Bart. When he returned, he told his parents that he made a very important decision today. He said, I committed my life to Christ. Joel asked me to turn my life over to Jesus and to become a Christian, and I said I would. But for some reason, this gospel message never would have stuck into Bart's heart if it wouldn't have been for the authentic life and genuine faith of Joel. Not only did he have the message, he had the authenticity, he was a real Christian, and Bart could not deny it. I doubt that Joel could have done what he did if it had not been just, if it would have been a verbal testimony, but it was a living testimony. And the day, the kindness and the love that Joel had showed to Bart affected him. At the end of the year, Bart, Bart, he had a room full of trophies and titles. But at the end of the soccer season, Bart had earned all sorts of titles, but Joel had earned a fantastic testimony. In the end, titles and trophies won't matter, but real question will be, do we have a testimony? Do we cherish the gift called life? Do we treasure each moment of each day, honor one another even when we may be difficult? And let me tell you, it's in the difficult times that you may shine as a real Christian more than in the great times. It's when you're hurt. It's when you're going through a divorce. It's when you lose a job. It's when you're going through a health issue. It's when you're going through these. That's your opportunity to shine. We're all broken pots, broken vessels. But it's God's light in us that shines out when we give him the opportunity to. I want to close with this today. Are you going to shine for Jesus Christ? One day, this one day, it's all going to be different. One day, the, the accounting scales, it's all going to be rectified. Right now, under this world, it's not fair. There's not a thing in this world that's fair, but one day, it's going to be fair. One day, people like Paul will be appreciated. One day, the people that stand for right will not be falsely accused and righted against. One day, but today is not that day. We've got to live for that day, but today, we need to be the Lord's. Can we bow our heads? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray today. I pray today that we will choose that this life belongs to you. You bought this life with your own blood. God, it's the Lord's day. It's the Lord's people. It's the Lord's supper. It's the Lord's church. We belong to you. We don't belong to ourselves. If everything in this life goes against us, one day it'll be made right. And that's the day we're living for. May when we get to the end of our journey that we have more testimonies, that we have people that's willing and wanting to fall on us and cry because they've met a real Christian. They've met somebody that really demonstrates the love of God. In Jesus' name we pray.